Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, the pleasure of speaking with Sebastian Berenson, Director of Value Creation, and Siraj Shamij, Knowledge Transfer Officer at Wageningen University and Research, also known as WUR in the Netherlands. Sebastian coordinates and develops WUR's value creation activities to generate impact and value add for society. Sebastian is responsible for knowledge transfer and IP services, sharing research facilities, startup and spinoff activities, including fostering entrepreneurship through the student incubator Start Hub and the Ag Food Tech Accelerator Start Life, Wageningen Campus Development, and the Science Shop and Wageningen Dialogue Center. Sebastian's passion is to connect people and have a personal impact on global challenges by using his business administrative background. Prior to his time at WUR, Sebastian worked in consulting, research, and education at Delft University of Technology and the Ministry of Economic Affairs as the coordinator of the Innovation Attaché Network. Sebastian has been working for more than 20 years in the field of business development, valorization, innovation clusters, startup and scale support, and international cooperation in research and development. Siraj is part of the Value Creation Office at WUR, where his role can best be described as innovation support and scout. In this role, Siraj scouts for innovative ideas and technologies that germinate within the WUR. This takes place via direct interaction with professors, researchers, PhDs, and students discussing their research ideas with him, often at an early stage. By identifying the ideas at an early stage, Siraj's goal is to successfully support the scientists and students in the roadmap towards value creation. Besides scouting and screening, his expertise lies in IP protection. He advises on funding, provides business intelligence support, assistance spin-off and startup venture building, identifies co-creation opportunities, and organizes networking and inspiration events for employees and students. Prior to his role at the Value Creation Office at WUR, Siraj was a Marie Curie Fellow and holds a PhD in functional plant proteomics. He has a master's in agrobiotechnology from the University of Gissen in Germany. He was a visiting Erasmus Fellow at Gregor Mendel Institute in Vienna, Austria, and he grew up in a third-generation family of farmers, and this explains his natural choice of education and inclination towards agriculture, as he graduated with honors from Murthwanda Agricultural University in India. Siraj's research expertise spans from agronomy, molecular breeding, to biotechnology, and fermentation technology. This expertise now comes in handy in his current job in the Knowledge Transfer Office at WUR. And with those extremely impressive and diverse backgrounds, welcome to the podcast, Sebastian and Suresh. Thanks. Thanks to be on the show, Lisa. 
Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having us on the show, Lisa. Happy to be here. Well, thank you both so much again for taking part in the podcast. It's really great to have you both here. Sebastian and Suraj, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to knowledge transfer. Can you each tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the Netherlands and at WUR? Oh, yeah. Uh, lovely. Lisa, one of the key things, actually, I sort of stumbled into this field by accident, I would say. So I did my business administrative uh, training at the Rotterdam School of Management, focusing on um, change management and strategic management. And I never really, well, anticipated of working in an academic work, uh, working environment. But then again, after graduating, I uh, filed with a great job as a trainee at the Delft University of Technology. And I was gripped at the very first day to be working in the forefront of knowledge, new technologies, new uh, science to be brought not only to the academic field, but also to uh, to society. And that was roughly 20 years ago. Uh, and ever since, I, I, I sort of weaved a path from working in an academic environment um, to the, say, governmental and administrative side of innovation policy and international collaborative efforts in RDNI. Um, also started consulting uh, in a private sector and then went back to Wageningen University and Research to head this office and, and found this office actually in 2017. So a diverse routing, um, but I think one of the key cues would be um, my upbringing. My father was an entrepreneur, uh, built up a company from scratch to 175 people, brought that in into an international corporate. So we was both uh, an entrepreneur as well as an intrapreneur, uh, but always with a keen keen eye on learning, development, and, and really making things uh, work, not only thinking about them, but really making them work uh, in practice. So that, that I think that inspired me uh, one way or the other, a long way back. Wow, that's quite an incredible journey. And it's one of the really neat things about this podcast is people come from such diverse backgrounds. And, and that's a, a very, very diverse background, like you said. So um, really, it's always interesting to see where people come from. And so then, Suraj, I think uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about your background as well. Yeah, I actually was happy to hear uh, what Sebastian said, because I could also relate this in my uh, introduction to my father. Um, because I also grew up in a family uh, of farmers, so they are for third generation uh, farmers. Uh, and my father, although the agriculture business doesn't work so well, he still considered himself farming as his main profession. So growing up uh, and um, so studying agriculture was was a logical choice for me. And uh, I was very much fascinated just before my bachelor's already about the, the advances that we made in biotechnology and the um, the BT cotton was just launched in India. And uh, I remember studying the mechanism and I was very fascinated by how the whole mechanism works. I'm like, oh, I would like to study biotechnology, but I do have this background of agriculture. So I could, and I found a course that was agrobiotechnology. And then after doing a bachelor's, I said, hey, I would like to also see an international um, um, research uh, experience, have an international research experience on uh, what the field is and where it is. So this led me to coming to Germany, uh, went for an internship to um, to Vienna, where I met uh, scientists from the Netherlands uh, who were at the conference and just having this conversation and they invited me to apply for a PhD position in the Netherlands. 
And uh, I said, yeah, I, this is something I would like to 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 further take my scientific career and at least do a PhD degree before I move on to something else. So one thing led to the other, and I came to Wakhandigan, a very small town, uh, uh, tiny town, uh, bigger than my village uh, back in India. But I immediately fall in love with the colleagues, with the team, and with the research that I was doing. So it was very fundamental research. And uh, early on, I knew after my PhD, I would probably go back and um, uh, revisit what my father has been doing in his uh, career. So he's also very entrepreneurial in a sense, do, uh, coming up with many ideas, doing different businesses that are still linked to agri and farm. And right now, both my parents and my siblings are based there. So for me also, after PhD, I was looking for opportunities to, to work on bringing innovations or agriculture knowledge to practice. And I think it was a, quite a funny story, actually, also accidental how I ended up in tech transfer. I um, was interviewing for my very first job um, after defending my PhD. And Sebastian was on the interview pattern. Oh, wow. And I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea he was uh, the director of the tech transfer office. He was interviewing for a in senior position. I was glad I was invited to this interview. This way I got to learn a bit more about what it meant. Uh, so they needed somebody at a senior position who could speak Dutch. But uh, I did not get the job, but he kept in touch with me. And a few months later, because he was uh, in this phase of setting up the tech transfer office, he invited me to uh, test the waters of technology transfer. So I worked at the value creation office for a few months uh, without any clue that what it would entail uh, uh, three years from now. Uh, and I was on the side also constantly applying for other interesting jobs. But half year in, Sebastian and uh, my other colleague, they said, hey, we really like uh, um, what you do here. And I also really enjoyed the satisfaction of uh, really helping PhD scientists with their innovative ideas and trying to bring them towards marketplace or towards impact. And also on the, on the, on the journey, learning all the different facets of uh, tech transfer. I think I still remember the first day when Sebastian shared the the article from Lita Nelson on what it means to be a technology transfer professional. And I really enjoyed learning that. Like, yeah, this is how I feel I would like to work. So I I accepted this offer and declined the others. And uh, I'm quite uh, satisfied of being on this role and growing and helping innovations within our ecosystem to foster. Yeah. Well, and it seems like, Suraj, that this was a perfect fit for you because your university is a world-leading agricultural university and giving your farming background, it, it seems like a, a really, really good fit. And yeah. in fact, it's been ranked number one seven times in a row for agricultural sciences. So it, it really is interesting how you ended up there. And and in fact, um, it claims the top spot in the world rankings in the disciplines of environmental sciences and food technology uh, as well. Um, and moreover, to add to that, those really impressive rankings, um, from what I know, and, and I've actually been to Wageningen several times, um, the region's referred to as the Silicon Valley of Agricultural and Food, and it's nicknamed the Food Valley. So for those of our listeners who are not familiar with WUR and this Food Valley region, I think it'd be really interesting if you could tell us a little bit more about what makes both the university and this region unique as well as some of the different types of research that take place both there, take place both there at the university as well as in the region. Yeah, yeah, would love to. 
Actually, Wageningen University Research is um, comprised of two entities, led by one board and supported by one uh, support staff. And that is on the one hand side, Wageningen University, and on the other, uh, Wageningen Research. And that's uh, an RTO, or a research and technology organization, so doing applied research. And that has been the case uh, now for just over 20 years. But roughly uh, 105 years ago, the university was founded, uh, particularly in this place, in Wageningen, because it was, well, the location, the prime location of three different soil types. So sandy soil, peaty soil, and clay soil, actually to see what those soil types would do if you would... Um, get the best out of science and technology in uh, learning uh, and improving uh, yields and improving harvesting technologies, but also uh, well crop management as well as um, a breeding, breeding technology. So the university itself, just over 100 years ago, was founded to, to help the farmer sector in the Netherlands uh, export better produce and thus um, have a stronger stronger background because you well most of the farmers were still very small and Wageningen Research being the applied research institutes were founded roughly um, in the interbellum and many of them so between uh, the first world war and second world war um, once again to actually enhance the spreading of knowledge uh, to the individual farmers and many different institutes were set up um, for each sort of subtype category in both uh, the ag space as well as um, uh, within fishing uh, and other uh, livestock farming. So um, these two um, uh, different organizations, they merged more or less, uh, still being two different entities in uh, uh, roughly the years 2000, um, because it didn't go well with the university at that time. Uh, it still is a small university. Nowadays, we have 13,000 students. Um, then we only had four and a half thousand. So the uni was uh, uh, really straggling in numbers of numbers of students. Um, and the sort of union or the, the marriage with applied research um, uh, was not only the, 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 the savior of the day, but also a groundwork or a, a seedbed for growth for the many years to come after that. Because there is no institute in the world that combines both fundamental research and education in bachelor, master and PhD doing at the university, as well as applied research um, in the food uh, uh, food processing space, in the agri space, as well as in the environmental and ecology space, and then combining that even with um, social sciences and economics. So we have roughly six, six and a half thousand colleagues at VUR, uh, half at the university, half at the applied research institutes. Um, as I said, uh, 13,000 students currently, so some 60,000 alumni, and uh, there are annually some um, 300 uh, PhD defenses. So that gives sort of a flavor uh, of the size of the operation, but the number of PhD defenses is really outpacing what a regular university would do at that size. And in that respect, we are sort of, um, well, we could almost say an, 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 a pyramid uh, upside down. If you look into the numbers of bachelor students, then master students and then PhDs, because we have so many graduates in, in master students and PhDs, and they come from all over the world um, with roughly 50 programs in, in bachelor and master uh, 
teaching programs. Um, we have many, many master students who come from all over the world. So over 110 nations uh, do study and work at Wageningen. Wow, that's, that's really impressive in terms of um, the number of students and the amount of PhDs and, and master's degrees that, that you're turning out there. So I, I'm curious, um, given that, could you tell us a little bit about your team and office and perhaps its focus areas? Yeah, yeah, would love to. So with these two entities, we support both, uh, both the university as well as Wageningen Research. And um, we have roughly 60 people uh, working currently in our department, the Department of Value Creation. And uh, as said, we've set that up in 2017. So we've been growing uh, since 2017. Um, and we have four main areas of expertise in which there are several teams working, which is not only the knowledge transfer field. So the knowledge transfer office looking into uh, patents and license agreements, license deals, as well as the scouting and screening of, of pre-proposals or pre-propositions. Uh, but we also have uh, two teams working on entrepreneurship, of course, uh, both inward looking with a education and uh, um, uh, incubator approach, as well as outward looking. We have a full team dedicated as a national accelerator in um, startups for, uh, with the agri tech and food tech background. Um, but those two would comprise a regular KT office, roughly, so entrepreneurship and knowledge transfer. But next to those, we have a wider and encompassing vision on what value creation is, because value that we see is really bringing um, knowledge into practice, into society and enhancing, say, multiple levels of value creation, not only financial, but also really seeing our knowledge being used in practice transforms not only industry, but also feeds the world um, because we see, of course, challenges in our field. So not only tech transfer and entrepreneurship are needed for that, but also the campus, um, uh, which is a great location of uh, not only co-locating and co-working, but you really get, have to get out of the building to start talking to one another and see what needs to be done to get great ideas, uh, not only fostered, but thrive uh, through the various stages of development and land in, in practice. So. Uh, campus development and the innovation ecosystem development is also part of our team, um, leading to many companies and organizations and research institutes at our campus. And uh, if they're there, they really want to do stuff. So we also open up research facilities. So a, a very large team is focusing on opening up our research facilities, not only on apparatus level, but large uh, facilities that we have uh, both in Wageningen as well as elsewhere in the Netherlands, because we also have 20 locations of applied research stations elsewhere in the Netherlands close by to the sectors, um, for example, uh, shellfish uh, at the coast, or also um, we have a large uh, the dairy campus, uh, uh, which focuses on, on, on dairy, of course, so with 500, 600 cows. We do all kinds of innovations in the in that field and yet again a different uh, applied research station on for example horticulture or in um, uh, orchards um, so we also support these in the rollout towards and opening up of their facilities to be used by others and then a final team uh, or two teams actually 
focus on uh, knowledge transfer on a more societal and uh, social and, and humanities uh, perspective. Um, and storytelling also on the impact that we make as Wageningen University Research, because the researchers are really good at uh, fostering new ideas and, and writing great uh, scientific reviews and, and articles, doing good PhD defenses, hence the rankings. Um, but we're not always that good in, in telling about what actually moved the needle in, in the world. So that's what our team also supports. And we draw in um, funding, charity fundraising with our university fund, Wageningen. So we look towards um, donations as well as um, uh, wealthy people that would like to move the needle and we, we bring those together. So these are the four large sort of um, focus areas of our department as a, as a whole, but we can't do that alone. Um, so we have close connections with all the different sciences groups and within these sciences groups, we work with management as well as team and uh, group leaders, PIs, but also business developers. So at the Wageningen Research, Applied Research side, there are many people that have a focus on um, fostering public-private partnership projects in which many um, different organizations work in a, in, in a joint effort project and we support them not only in reaching out uh, but also in the uh, say the track the, the regular tech transfer uh, um, puzzles like uh, licensing and deal making and and the contracting of such public-private partnerships so that's what we do um, with different teams in in, in, in quite a big large uh, uh, department yet still uh, we do that with our 6,000 colleagues. And luckily, uh, we have people like Suraj uh, with a very strong intellectual background also in the field, because that's what you need uh, if you want to talk to the uh, to the research teams and to the professors. Absolutely. And I did have a quick follow-up question about your team. You, you mentioned your office is about 60 people broken up into these, these four main areas. And and you did mention social innovation, and the reason why I want to I just go back to that question for a second is that's something that um, in the U.S., technology transfer or knowledge transfer offices are, are really starting to, I think, embrace more. So I think in some ways, maybe the U.S. is a little bit behind on social innovation. So I'm, I'm curious, is that something that has been part of uh, your value creation office since the beginning, or is that something that, that evolved over time and was added on? No, actually, it was part of uh, of our department since the beginning. Um, for example, we still have um, a team which is called the Science Shop, um, and that has been active for. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Actually, I I guess next year is going to be a lustrum or something. Twenty five odd years, or maybe even thirty odd years, and we provide the money for. Um, projects and uh, provide project leaders as well as uh, students um, for yeah, organizations in the Netherlands. It's only focused on, on Dutch projects uh, for which uh, usually citizens um, uh, and, and the civic society don't have the means to attract uh, scientific um, uh, outreach and scientific um, really delving into the, to the problem. Uh, like one of the projects we did um, came from various backgrounds in Amsterdam, the city of Amsterdam. They um, see heat stress uh, arise in large cities, of course, with uh, with climate change, so hotspots of, of, of dwelling heat in, in cities. 
And some um, civic groups, they, they decided, well, what can we do about it in our own neighborhood? And, and uh, they wanted to have uh, good insight, so they, they asked us. We, we provided a project with a team of students and some um, uh, research team leaders. We um, looked into how can you actually do that both um, by the people in the neighborhood themselves, uh, but also uh, attracting the, the municipality in there and, and other uh, uh, companies or, or NGOs who could do something. And um, the research uh, results of those projects are now being translated to other cities. So that's something that we really foster and we really like. Um, but then again, we also challenge then the team. Okay, yeah, can you translate it to other locations as well? So societal innovation has always been part of um, our DNA and many of the people that work at, at VUR uh, really come for making an impact globally, um, but tend to trip up on uh, really focusing on, on the academic challenges. Uh, so we try to really weave that thinking back into the organization again. And also why we've set up these four domains uh, directly from the, from the start as one department. And, and not many KT offices have that indeed. No, no, I thought that was really very interesting. So so thank you very much for sharing that. And, and that actually leads me to something else that I wanted to ask, which was um, some statistics uh, of your team in terms of the impact it's made since uh, the Value Creation Office was actually created. Yeah, and you've, you've prompted also... Um, some KPIs, and 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 first of all, let me say that outputs not impact. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, actually, when we're hired, me they asked me, okay, what what are you going to do? What are your main challenges or main uh, main features? And the first oh, thing I I'm going to ask I'm, you later that question. I, I'm not going to count as an aim. Uh, it's not the target to to get the numbers um, uh, as high up as as can be, because the main aim is to be recognized and to be seen as the university and as well as an RTO that really makes an impact. But we need those outputs there, of course. So we have roughly uh, nowadays uh, two to three spin-offs per annum, um, which is already up from uh, one per year uh, to now uh, two to three per year in five years' time. Um, we also have five to 10 student startups per year actually, and those are companies that are then erected by students but do not have an IP base or an IPR base in it. So they're usually inspired by what they are being taught or they come to the university to uh, see the content and then start companies, but there's not an IPR base in it. Um, on average, next to that, we have only 40 to 60 IDFs, which is really, really uh, a low number. Uh, for um, a university or an, an institute of, of our size. And that's because we only started counting them and seeing them three or four years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, before that, there, the, the organization was uh, led primarily by the science groups, as we call them. Uh, some other um, European universities will call them faculties. So the organizational units within the were. Um, and there was no worldwide um, scouting done for pre-propositions. So there were no, or hardly any IDFs. We do have roughly 15 to 20 uh, patent applications per year, but we didn't see what was before that in the pipeline. And we really 
well, we need to step up that effort. So we're not there yet, but um, we need to. And that's where I'm very glad with Suraj also uh, being on the team to scout the potential for, uh, well, ways to get knowledge really into practice because it doesn't always need to go through a, uh, a patent or another form of IPR. Yeah. So what we scout, we not don't necessarily scout for invention disclosures, but we also scout for IDs. So this can take a different form, can be sort of, uh, can lead to different routes. So that's what uh, that that funnel is even bigger. So that idea funnel is much more larger than the invention disclosure alone. But that also we study in the, only in the last three years we started to count for them and do those intakes and have those conversations and see what those ideas, those value proposition need to further go on either to a patent, to a spin-off company, or could be a co-creation opportunity or forming a new collaborative research project. Uh, so they go in all different forms. Uh, and actually to, to add to that, since we're comprised of two entities, both have a different um, mindset and say aim towards the market. Uh, so the university is very much on, on fundamental research and, and, and well, uh, the biggest uh, and best route towards societal impact is, of course, graduation. So the, the, the master thesis and the, the PhDs that roll out of the university. Um, so there has not really been a big strive or push for, for example, uh, patent applications. Because um, we tend to work closely with uh, both companies as well as um, uh, government uh, in our projects. So there's already quite a lot of knowledge transfer being done during those projects. And yeah. if there would be uh, patentable or, or otherwise um, um, protectable research uh, results, um, there used to be a very regular inclination to say, okay, let's do that and, and tra transfer it already to our research partners who are already in the project, instead of filing it um, uh, by the university or by, by Wageningen Research uh, prior. Yeah, so that, that makes, as I said, 15 to 20 applications per, per year, but we still have roughly 150 uh, patent uh, portfolios uh, ready, patent families um, still uh, live. Most of them are listed by Wageningen Research as an RTO, as a very strong foundation of the uh, knowledge generated over the past uh, decades uh, to once again open up and show and tell that uh, it is a very good organization to work with for applied research. So they tend to keep and then license instead of transfer it, um, whereas the university uh, does it the other way around if it would actually file, then please transfer it early on uh, because we're not there to keep or hold on to it. And uh, well, companies and, and other organizations are well better uh, to well um, expand the, 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 the work to actually make it happen in practice. So Sebastian, you gave some statistics about startups and I wanted to ask, could you tell us a little bit more about the innovation ecosystem there at WUR and how your team supports startups coming out of the university? So first of all, we have, as I said, an inward looking team and <laughs> our entrepreneurship at work team that um, fosters an entrepreneurial mindset and skill set amongst our students. And we try to engage in all those uh, bachelor and master programs. So roughly 20 bachelor programs and, and 30 master programs to get entrepreneurial 
uh, and innovative um, uh, courses in those programs. So we intend to reach, uh, in the end, roughly 80% of our students with entrepreneurial courses, which is not the case yet, but we're getting there. Um, and then we got them engaged, we're enticed. And then they, we, we'd love to have them also um, uh, walk the floor at our student incubator. So um, uh, quite a few of them um, walk in in the evening sessions. We got a, a very large uh, programming uh, as extracurricular. And uh, quite a few of them then really start working on their idea. And uh, during that process, uh, many of them stop or, or they see that their idea was maybe not fit to really start a company with. Uh, but that's still, they, they have um, uh, gained uh, skills and insight in how that works. So that's the education uh, part as well as the, um, uh, the student incubator, uh, where we also cater for our colleagues uh, who are already employees of, of work. Yeah. Um, so next to that, we have the uh, really IP-based uh, tech transfer and spin-off route. And that's where the team uh, uh, of, of our knowledge transfer team comes in, where Suraj can, can explain how that actually works. Yeah. So uh, we um, also, thanks for bringing me here in Sebastian. Um, regarding with the knowledge, knowledge transfer support, so I often serve, or me together with other colleagues, we serve as the first point of contact if they um, would like to take a spin-out route. So we... Um, uh, start the process of intake, uh, see where they stand, what what form of IP serves as a basis to 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 set up such a company in the end, and what is that they need. So uh, what the TRL levels are, how long the road is. So it could be it would take three years before a potential spin-out could be formed, and also what the ambition of the team is. Do the the scientists want to become a potential entrepreneur, or are they really want their PhDs or somebody else to lead uh, the entrepreneurial venture, or do we need to match with other entrepreneurs outside elsewhere? So we try to uh, ask a lot of questions and also see what, what are the needs uh, they have at different stages and then try to help them with those uh, as we progress. D during that progress, maybe to add to that, we have um, made a, a stage gate pr procedure, um, which, well, of course, they, they can't be done faster. But one of the key things, uh, together with the uh, with the researcher teams, is to really get down to the nitty gritty. Okay, so where does it actually come from? The IPR is it already filed or is it strong enough to to yeah. start a company with? Um, because as I said m m many of our projects are public-private partnership projects, so there are usually already ties or linkages with other organizations. And then if that's done and said okay uh, then um, and it's clear that which uh, people lead the potential entrepreneurial team then we strike out a knowledge transfer deal and then if if that's more or less set and the company can more or less be uh, started up or erected then start life comes into play so we have first an internal procedure to really fix it is, is this uh, uh, spin out and scalable worthy yes uh, make the deal and if that's done uh, then start life kicks in and that's the national accelerator for startups in the ag and food space we set that up in 2010 so just over 10 years ago and um it works as said nationwide uh, so most of the companies that are fostered by this accelerator do not come from wageningen university of research but uh, come from 
other uh, locations all over the Netherlands and actually from all over Europe because in the past three years they've they've opened up shop for uh, European uh, startups and they also uh, are drawn into the uh, uh, the cohorts of the accelerator program so half of the 40-ish that are supported annually by Start Life are international then 20 are Dutch uh, and of those 20 only three or four are coming directly from Wageningen University Research because they come from the rest of the Netherlands. Yeah. And that's really helpful for those companies because they see and get the best mentors. They are linked up to the best uh, potential VCs because Start Life has a strong network now of uh, just under 15 uh, VC companies, not only operating in the Netherlands, but many of them Europe-wide. Uh, as well as uh, just under 20 uh, corporates uh, who are corporate partner to the uh, accelerator program. And they are, of course, not only um, looking for the best startups to to broaden their innovation funnel, but they're also, they have facilities, they have mentors, they have potential people that could join the teams uh, or they are clients of those startups. So um, fostering that, uh, with Start Life uh, uh, on arm's length of the university uh, really works well. Now, you've mentioned, um, I, I think that's a great segue to my next question, which you mentioned VCs a little bit. And I want to ask you about funding opportunities that are available for startups there in Wageningen. Maybe I would like to jump in and uh, share some things here, Lisa. Um, as, as, as Sebastian also mentioned, and also the journey from knowledge to impact or really creating value is quite long and it's an iterative process and there is a constant need of support, uh, which also includes funding uh, and our office supports scientists and students with their ideas or value propositions long before even they decide to establish a startup or a spin out. Uh, so the fundings are available as early as in the ideation phase uh, or while they are building their value proposition. Uh, one of the examples that we have internally within uh, within our office uh, is uh, we, we have a dedicated grant called the Road to Innovation. So this is a call that's open throughout the year and it's open for all our employees, students, like um, the staff of the university to really test uh, their IDs um, uh, or do a proof of concept or a feasibility and bring it one step closer towards market. So this is a form of funding uh, without knowing where they want to go with it. Um, would it be a potential company uh, or not? But then besides that, uh, we also host a lot of different competitions and innovation challenges and give out awards uh, that can help uh, at the early stage to start to realize your ideas and come up with a business case. Uh, our office, we also advise because we know we have internal funds, but there's also external funds and subsidies uh, from the government or from the region that uh, to be entrepreneurs can apply and secure them. So our office also helps them in advising and securing those funds. It could rather be the NW takeoff grant or the MIT feasibility grant or even our thematic tech transfer uh, fund that we have. And um, beyond that, when uh, the startup reaches more of a pre-seed stage, uh, then this is where Start Life or even our student uh, student hub, a Start Hub Exeter can come in. So they can actually provide uh, a very small uh, uh, sort of a, a subordinated loan. Uh, and this, um, so the Start Hub can provide uh, to be entrepreneurs with a business idea 
to really apply for such a loan and then use it to accelerate their business activities. And this is up to 10K. Uh, but then Start Life, uh, which in collaboration with the province of Gelderland and the regional developmental agency, OSTNL, they have a, a bigger law uh, fund that enables access to more than 25 to 250K. Uh, it's also a pre-seed fund. Uh, but then beyond that, what Sebastian men mentioned, uh, so we don't, as a knowledge institute, invest in our startups um, uh, uh, with funds, but then we do open up the whole network of VCs. And this is where the latest stages of development from Series A to eventually to IPO stages could also be funded with this uh, invest network that we have tightly knit in. And... Um, one of the um, signature events that I would like to share with our listeners here as well is the annual FNA Next events. It's a food and agri next event. This is one of the places where most of the investors and our startups are looking forward to meeting because this is a place where most of the deals take places, most of the cross fertilization happens, and this is the place where new ideas get the the spotlight or the new heroes in agri tech and food are showcased so we know what's coming and we showcase what's there to uh, to address this challenges that we face so so this is uh, all the different ways that we fund and maybe sebastian do we do you want to add something here yeah um if that would be fitting to um to uh, elaborate even further so one other way to look at it, as said, we don't invest ourselves cash in companies is indeed to or to open up a network of investors. Um, and we have close collaboration with uh, various uh, venture capital firms uh, operating in the Netherlands, um, always with a keen uh, focus on impact investing. And uh, we try to get those uh, venture capitalists go earlier and earlier uh, in order to match and, and fit the very early stage that spin-offs are, are going through, uh, but still also have a multi-stage fund. So not only go earlier, but also have uh, the, the long uh, breath uh, to, to really bring it forward from, from well, the lab uh, to, to a factory. And if we look into the various um, uh, spin-offs of where, well, often uh, they take five to 10 years to really reach maturity because the technology in it, uh, particularly if they're biotech based, uh, really has, well, various stages of development uh, and various stages of uh, growth funding to go through. So I know that WUR has a number of strategic alliances and partnerships that play important roles in knowledge transfer there at the university. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these? Yeah, so one of the uh, elder ones that we've actually erected in, in 2004 is called Food Valley. So um, with, the, uh, uh, with, a, with the look and feel of, of, of Silicon Valley, we saw at that time already, um, well, there's lots of work to be done to really get ideas uh, be translated into practice. Lots of further research, but particularly really harnessing that into products and services well that's something we're, we're not really good at so let's see if we can get a sort of uh, innovation broker or cluster organization there uh, and that's where food valley started um so co-founded uh, by by we're uh, in order to get and weave more organizations uh, towards us uh, in a way to to really 
at a very early stage, show and tell what uh, great, well, potential knowledge there is uh, to be taken up. But still, we need those others to really take them up and really foster them towards products. Exactly. That's really creative, actually. Yeah, and it's also challenging. Uh, I, because, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> it's, as uh, well, many cluster managers would, would tell, uh, particularly in, in, in Europe, um, many of those initiatives start with a sort of uh, either a knowledge institute or, or a, a governmental agency uh, being a pusher and a driver for it. And then industry and private sector sort of leans back and says, well, okay, let's see what happens. Uh, while you still need those private sector and you actually need them in the driver's seat and also in the funding seat, but particularly in, in Europe that in the funding seat, they, they don't get there easily because, um, well, they see it as a as a public good uh, to get such an, a liaison office or a cluster organization. So they tend to look towards government and say, okay, you fund that. Uh, it's great that these people are there and they really connect and they get all kinds of events or but um, let me just jump in and, and see what's uh, at stake for me. So that, that's one of the first ones we founded. Um, and it's still doing a good job in, in, in really weaving and getting people uh, to talk to one another because from interaction, you really get to action. But still, you need to feed that with new ideas. So just a few years ago, uh, two, three years ago, we started a, a brand new uh, institute. It's called One Planet. And it's focusing on the crossroads of uh, sensor development, uh, AI, and then using that in the fields of uh, agri, food, and the environment, as well in, in, in health and healthcare. And we do that together with IMAC, which is the world-leading applied research institute in semicon-based uh, sensors and AI. And uh, with the other university here in the Netherlands, Radboud University and Radboud Medical Center. And IMAC actually came to us and came to, to Nijmegen um, because they say, you're great at the application field. We don't understand that that well because if we make a sensor, it, it will definitely go awry and, and go br uh, bust in, for example, a barn or with, uh, with pigs. But we still need um, to monitor their health and reduce, uh, for example, uh, antibiotics use. Uh, we have to monitor the health of, of livestock. So that's where uh, we collaborate. Really interesting collaborations and partnerships you have there. Really fascinating. But I, I do want to switch gears a little bit and want to ask you about some successes, particularly success stories that you've had there, whether it's successful technologies, startups, or impact that the university has had. It's good, Lisa, that you asked me that question today, because just last Friday, we've uh, launched our first uh, Wageningen University Research Impact Award. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, there, there was not yet an award for uh, teams that really make impact. Uh, so there was on uh, teaching and there was on uh, particularly, of course, on, on uh, the academic uh, uh, way of working. And our impact award um, lauded uh, the team that uh, is called a a Food Waste Free United. And it's actually a collaborative effort for over 15 years now, uh, led by a PI at Wageningen Food and Biobased Research, in order to get various organizations work together to battle food waste. And what uh, what they did, Tuan Timmermans is the name, the leader of this um, uh, of this team, 
uh, is to, well, grasp over 100 organizations now uh, and not only make a, a battling food waste uh, fancy instead of, uh, well, uh, disgusting. Well, a lot filthy. of people, yeah, would say, <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. And now all the major retailers in the Netherlands are actually monitoring and measuring the food they waste. And they are uh, setting up uh, uh, battle, battle plans to push it down. Uh, and they have already uh, pushed that down in the past two years heavily because now they know, they measure and they monitor and they get plans. Um, as well as engage with the, the, the larger audience and larger public. So with consumers and see that battling food waste can also be fun. Yeah, there, there's something that you don't hear every day. Battling food waste can be fun, but that, but that's a really important initiative and something, you know, I can't even begin to fathom how much food is wasted around the world. And, and that's our, sounds like an, just an amazing innovation. So, so congratulations. Yeah, just to get you a little bit on the numbers, roughly a quarter of all our food does not reach our table. Yeah, so that that's a significant initiative and project. And if we can do that all around the world, it can have absolutely tremendous impact. So that's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And on a on a way different scale, something completely different. Fostering great spin-offs is, of course, one thing, but they need to grow and excel. And that's where we started a national program. Uh, together with the other uh, technical universities in Tino, um, to make them scalable. And, and Suraj is scouting for one of them. So could you engage? Yeah. No, so, um, yeah, I can add uh, to to it. So it's called the Thematic Tech Transfer Program. It started in 2019. And I think it's quite unique in its, uh, in its uh, formation because it brings in uh, research organizations, um, then uh, um, the... VCs, uh, investors together uh, to, for really a chance to collaborate and uh, uh, work on thematic challenges that we face uh, on from circularity to uh, to fostering innovations in uh, med tech and uh, smart industries, for instance. So what we do is here, for example, in some of the programs that we are running uh, since last three, four years is um, where Knowledge institutes such as Wageningen uh, so University and Research, working together with other TTO office or KTO office, as we call them, like TU Twinter, Eindhoven, TNO, and Delft. So all these technical universities together with Wageningen and TNO, all these KTOs join their forces together on a certain theme, trying to foster early stage spin out IDs. And what it does is like not only joining the forces, uh, but also the aim is that it brings in more funding is available for 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 knowledge institution to fund such ids uh, early on at a very early developmental stages it also allows uh, us to meet the investors and they can find us each other and um, and they both can benefit from their expertise and the third thing i think it also allows us to gain insight into the market needs and the market need demands at the early stage which can actually help uh, the promising knowledge-based startup to to excel and to flourish. So this is quite a unique way of how different KTOs within the Netherlands coming together and uh, strengthening their expertise and looking for crossovers and funding early stage uh, knowledge ventures. That's a really great initiative and program. Uh, congratulations on getting that done. I think um, there are some states here in the U.S. that are doing similar things where they're kind of pulling. And, and I think that makes tremendous difference. And so um, 
I, it sounds like a really great program. Yeah, maybe a good thing to add is uh, is, is an example of a spin-off from Wageningen University, actually. Um, it's called Chaincraft, and that is uh, actually the showcase of why we started this national program. So in 2010, uh, Chaincraft was spun out, and it was really not much more than a lab set on a lab bench of uh, one of the pre- uh, professors on uh, environmental technology, uh, separation technology, using enzymes in a uh, biotech um, uh, reactor to really use, well, regular waste streams, uh, residual waste streams and other waste streams and and see to um, uh, valuable products that could be uh, uh, broken down from them. And ever since 2010, the uh, investor that did that, Shift Invest, the impact investment firm in which I'm, I'm also participating in the, in the investment committee, they really brought that company to life and they took it away from Wageningen, actually. Uh, so they said, uh, Wageningen is not the best place to uh, foster this company because you need big, large uh, waste streams. So that's not the location. Let's move it to Amsterdam. Okay. And now Makes they're sense. located. Yeah, and they're now located in the in the harbor of Amsterdam. And over the past um, 10 years, they've built up a pilot um, uh, factory, which um, is on a relatively regular factory level, producing now from waste streams uh, specific feed additives for the animal feed, uh, which are now um, in the in the regular marketplace still for, um, uh, sourced from uh, a petrochemical feedstock. And now this company uh, then uh, can provide those uh, those acids uh, uh, coming from a uh, so circular and environmentally friendly feedstock instead. They're gearing up for their next uh, scale up um, uh, round and uh, one not only to uh, enlarge their their factory but also uh, plan more factories all, all over Europe. And that's a, a showcase of how. Um, the lengthy road and, and breadth of a investor, but also being very active in the very early stage, can help uh, bridge those gaps and those growth spurts in, in various yeah. stages of the of the company. And with this same venture capital firm, we've launched the uh, uh, National Thematic Tech Transfer Program on circular technologies because they understand what the, such a company needs, get there at a very early stage, and also say, well, this is not, uh, investable to us um, unless you do this and this and this and this. So at a very early stage, we get the, the right feedback to make scalable companies. Yeah, and this feedback is very valuable uh, to the starters, to the to be entrepreneurs and for the success of the companies, yeah. Well, speaking of success, I wanted to ask you about WUR's decision to provide free licenses to potential partners for your patented CRISPR technology portfolio. Can you tell us a little bit about what led to this decision, why it's unique, and how the license is being applied? Yeah, sure. Thanks for noticing this and asking this uh, to us, Lisa. Uh, As we know, CRISPR-Cas, the Nobel Prize winning uh, gene editing technology, it was it holds enormous potential to, especially when it uh, when we um, look into in the context of agriculture. So CRISPR-Cas offers advantage uh, over conventional breeding. And uh, we can rapidly and efficiently uh, modify plant traits, uh, for example, to offset our impacts of climate change and the invasive pathogens. Last year, ahead of the first UN Food System Summit, um, our president, Luis Fresco, 
and our pioneering um, uh, CRISPR-Cas scientist, uh, John van der Oost, made this announcement in the Nature Journal during our uh, annual celebration of the university birthday that we will offer our CRISPR-Cas patent portfolios to nonprofit organizations with free licenses to use for non-commercial applications. And I think it's, uh, we think it's very unique uh, for two different reasons. First of all, uh, it helps us to use the tool to address our nutritional and climate impact needs uh, in the global south for good, nutritious and sustainable food produce. And second, to visit revisit our regulations around gene editing technology. For example, in if you look at EU, it still holds CRISPR-Cas technology as GMO uh, and bans uh, from using it and bringing it to the marketplace. But now we are seeing a different form of uh, regulations uh, across the world, uh, in other parts of the world where gene editing is uh, coming to the, has access to market and can be used uh, and is technologically feasible to bring it to market. Uh, for example, this year, uh, talking about India, recently ex exempted gene edited crops from biosafety assessment in order to the boost agriculture which was a very much welcome decision by many um, and as far as our free licensing goes uh, it has to be applied for use in plants and agriculture and is limited to, to non-profit organization for non-commercial applications so the whole idea behind making this available was to the idea was to that this will contribute to a healthier, more sustainable, equitable, affordable, and a hopefully resilient food production system for us uh, all. Yeah. So just a quick follow up question on that. I'm assuming you've had takers who've taken the free licenses. Yeah. Yeah. So certainly. So since the announcement, uh, we had a lot of interest, uh, especially coming from um, uh, from emerging economies from the global south. And uh, our office is busy in uh, handling those licenses and making it available uh, as per our set conditions. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's really fantastic. And, and I, that leads me to ask you the question, what do you hope that other knowledge transfer or tech transfer offices realize from your decision to provide these free licenses to your patented CRISPR technology? And do you think that this ultimately could lead to some broader discussions on licensing of other platform technologies? Yeah, interesting and uh, complex question. Very. Uh, yeah, uh, I think we should look at, if you look at the um, CRISPR patent landscape, there has been some studies looking at uh, the, the the space uh, the in, in time this, this technology has grown. So if you look at uh, the thousands of CRISPR-Cas related patent that have been applied just in the last uh, 10 years or in a decade, in the last decade, uh, and the number keeps on growing every month, uh, a large proportion of this CRISPR patents are owned by universities, or you would find find an inventor coming from a university and not from the companies. So this, I think, is a good thing. Charging licensing fee to use intellectual property makes good business sense, but it can put technologies beyond the reach of nonprofit organizations in low-income countries. Um, as research institutes and nonprofit organizations in these countries. Uh, might not are actually working on improving crops for local farmers and for uh, the poor consumers. So they need access to these technologies. And our hope 
is that other institutions and TTO offices recognize the importance of free access to CRISPR-Cas technologies in low-income nations and step in to do the same. And hopefully this becomes a truly an international tech transfer initiative for the West uh, to the Global South, as this is one of the tools uh, that can help us um, address and ensure our food and nutrition security. That's what at least we believe. Yeah, I think it's a a great initiative and hopefully we'll see um, more engagement by other knowledge transfer and tech transfer offices. But Sebastian, did you have something you wanted to add on that? Yeah, it was also slightly um, uh, sort of uh, inspired by the discussions we were having already at that time uh, nationwide in the Netherlands uh, on uh, socially responsible licensing. That yep. was particularly drawn and pushed by the university medical centers. So from, a, a, of course, a, a drug perspective, drug development perspective, and uh, further enhance, of course, with the COVID uh, lockdowns and the problems that we have, but also the very rapid uh, vaccine development that we saw there. And the discussion, actually, that this development uh, of these vaccines prompted on um, who's getting uh, rewarded for the work done and the IP positions that really made it possible to get those uh, uh, vaccines out into the marketplace. So in the Netherlands, we had a strong discussion uh, on socially responsible licensing, particularly from a medical uh, biotech field. And we've uh, drawn up a national scheme on how to do that. So there's sort of a a regulatory framework for um, moving forward in that direction uh, with a a medtech uh, uh, field. But... Um, one of the key questions I would like to ask back to our listeners is uh, twofold. Um, how do you keep up uh, the cost of uh, such uh, IPR uh, if you would keep it at the Institute and still would like to provide sociable responsible licensing because there's still a hefty cost involved in, in the upkeep? Um, so you would need, and that's why we made the split between NGO use and, and commercial use. Uh, so you still need, well, some sort of a leverage factor to get that cost covered. And secondly, and that's the bigger uh, white elephant, is how to get a good and, and reasonable kickback to society for using that IPR that was once uh, founded uh, at public institutes and uh, provided with by public means. And that is, well, a very challenging and and different dilemma, Um, well prompted by Mariana Mazzucato, uh, who I um, deem very highly in this respect, but we still don't have the right answer to to this simple question. How to really get a good kit back back to society, done at public institutes, publicly funded. And yeah, that that's a great question that I think is going to be debated uh, for quite some time uh, to come, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully we're making small incremental steps forward on on that question. Let, let's hope so. Yes, indeed. Yeah, definitely. So switching gears, um, I did want to ask the two of you, what do you think are your office's two biggest challenges? Yeah, one I see still um, looming, or actually we need to really step on to, is um, a, a better engaging with SMEs. As I said, we have um, uh, a strong background in, in public-private partnerships. So, of course, particularly in, in fundamental research, it's often done uh, with large and multinational companies. 
yet SMEs can really put well um, gas in the gasoline or go forward towards uh, implementation because they need to get products out tomorrow because uh, the, the day after tomorrow they need the revenue to really uh, still be there as a company so the driver SMEs can have for making an impact and really um, pushing innovation towards new well, products and services, that's something we can foster, but it's also challenging because of the time uh, frame, which is so not always, uh, is, uh, well, uh, easily fitting the academic, uh, particularly in Europe with the PhD trajectories of four years and, um, uh, well, having products out there in the marketplace tomorrow. So engaging, improving our support with SMEs and really scaling up uh, companies that, that are very early on um, and weave those into those public-private partnership projects. Again, uh, that's challenging, but I, that's what I would like to see. SMEs, startups and, and scale-ups uh, uh, weave in, in, into our regular day-to-day -day business uh, better. So I wanted to switch gears again and ask the two of you about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because this is a topic that's being discussed in detail in knowledge transfer and tech transfer offices all around the world. Can you tell us what programs WUR has to help encourage and assist women and other traditionally underrepresented inventors and entrepreneurs? Yes, Lisa, we got several of them. Um, and maybe Suraj can elaborate a little bit on, on the first few that I will mention. Um, first of all, we have a, a specific program within Wageningen University Research looking for gender, gender equality. Um, secondly, following up on um, the protests that were worldwide and also in our own uh, university town, um, following up on a Black Lives Matter movement, um, we started up a, a pro project for a couple of years uh, called DARE, looking into diversity, anti-racism and uh, inclusion and equity within our own community, both uh, among students as well as staff, but also engaging with the larger public and, and looking into how do we see or speak to one another, but also what images do we use actually or what language do we use in our policies? and start discussing and debating that. Um, and that, well, is sort of uh, uh, then even catapulted a, a little bit further with our own dialogue programming, which is not particularly looking into equity and, and diversity, but um, being in the forefront of food, food is such a emotional and emotionally driven um, topic. Uh, we see it fit also with um, well, large concerns society-wise that, that science might only be an opinion instead of facts and, and something to debate and, and discuss upon. We started off uh, five to six years ago with a, a dialogue programming in order to weave in different views and visions on the challenges ahead and the transitions that we go through in the food systems field. And luckily, we uh, are able to uh, foster that program from our uh, department. So the program manager is is part of our our, our team, uh, as well as that we've actually built a new building on campus that is particularly focused on on providing the right place for dialogue. So that's that's wider than just looking into staff and um, uh, inclusion in our in our community, also among students, but. Um, 
that also prompts us the way that we uh, walk and talk amongst each other because opening up dialogue on a topic and then trying to get various viewpoints on there and, and stakeholders present and, and discuss what needs to be done also then kicks back and how do we do that in our regular day-to-day -day jobs and, and, and together with colleagues and that helps. That's the first I've heard of something like that where you're actually inviting the dialogue and, and a dedicated space to it. So I, I think that's that's very creative. Yeah. And um, Lisa, since I uh, personally have worked with in this organization for last eight years, four, four and a half years during my PhD and now in the value creation office, I have experienced also. So it's a very international uh, environment very supportive in a way that uh, you can voice your opinions you can speak up all the way to the president uh, and raise uh, any issues that you have and those will be addressed so um, we have uh, i think there are some fun events as well where we showcase diversity during the diversity week or one world week when where we all the students and staff showcase the culture and diversity within the organization so there's also on that side of things, a lot happening. There are dedicated awards towards um, fostering um, and recognizing uh, female um, uh, researchers in the field. Uh, for instance, the, if I'm pronouncing it right, it's called um, Miriana uh, Fandaman uh, Fund that's really named and uh, after um, uh, Miriana Fandama. So the aim of the, the, the Mariana Fandama Fund is uh, there to support talented female WUR alumni uh, to, to take the next step and, uh, of their career or to, to orient themselves into a different uh, uh, or broaden their uh, knowledge uh, or have an international orientation. So this is uh, some form of awards that are there dedicated to uh, uh, female scientists or researchers or alumni of the university. Uh, besides that, I uh, am uh, within our team also, uh, with, if you look at the value creation office and also if you look at Sebastian's, uh, all the sub teams that he has mentioned, uh, most of them are coordinated and led by uh, really smart and talented women, uh, all the sub teams. So, so also my colleagues, uh, I have Carla, she was also at the uh, ASTP conference, she's a scout for medtech expertise. So. Also within the team, there's quite some diversity and I'm coming from a very different national background as well. Uh, I'm also learning and busy. So the integration is also quite well. I am uh, uh, busy with also learning Dutch that helps also to, to integrate better within the team. So there's a lot of support uh, also um, within the team and at the organization. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of inclusive activities and, and a lot of different programs going on, which is fantastic. So Sebastian and Siraj, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests, if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would that be? And just uh, for purposes of fair disclosure, you can't ask for more wishes. <laughs> yeah, I would have liked that, but that doesn't really work. And having seen Aladdin, uh, I, I know how that won't work. So uh, I'll keep it short and try to only mention two. Um, one of them actually is uh, getting more uh, scouts in our team and really so more capacity building on, on, on yeah. scouting and screening because um, with only two or three scouts in our team and then a few more faces that sort of we weave into our team, which are not 
on our payroll, but they are good ears and eyes in the organization, we still only scratch the surface. And that's, I guess, with many tech transfer offices, the case, there's so much more going on. Yeah. I would like to see more. So that that's a better rephrase. I'd like to see more. Uh, and then in five years time, I, I hope um, that we're is worldwide recognized, not only for the great science and the best and most sustainable university, but the most impactful one because everybody sees the stories of, of how we move the needle. And everybody that works here is then also really much in gear doing that, not only doing great science, uh, but also having time in their teams to uh, go the extra mile. That's yeah. what I would wish. Yeah, I would just make the second wish and uh, put it between the first and the second of Sebastian is, uh, yeah, having scouts and a, a, a bigger team uh, helps to scratch more than the surface but i also wish that um, i was a researcher but i wasn't aware of the phenomenal work that the office does and i think this is often this often resonates when i meet uh, more and more professors and researchers and phd hey you exist within you your support is there so i also hope there's sort of um, um so we go out of building but the researchers read out to us, hey, we want to bring this towards a society. We want to do so and so sort of um, knowledge utilization activity. How can we uh, how can we help? Uh, how can you help us? Uh, what are the steps to do? So if they come and reach out to us is much more helps us as well, uh, shows there that we are even more enthusiastic um, uh, to follow on on those projects as well. So uh, this works both ways. Uh, so then um, I would wish that more scouts to scratch more than the surface, but also researchers coming to us. 6,000 employees, a lot to serve. So there's a lot of work that keeps us busy, but um, yeah. And then uh, uh, seeing the impact uh, down the line and being proud of it, that it has really benefited the end user, the consumer and the society at large, yeah. Well, Sebastian and Siraj, I can't thank you each enough for all your time and insights today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. This has been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask either one of you any questions, where can they reach you? Oh, that's perfectly done through our uh, easy to remember uh, mail address, valuecreation at ver.nl. Well, thank you both so much again. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, Likewise, thank you. Lisa. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.